Aloha and welcome to another episode of the Curvy Geeky Fangirl Podcast. This is the podcast where I, Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, go into all of the geeky things that I have been introduced to and are watched and or read that is geek related. It's wonderful and a little redundant now that I realize what I just said. Anyway, Continuing on, you can find me, <laughs> the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, on my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. You can hit me up on Instagram, Twitter. I am a contributor for fanbros.com. You can see my wonderful fandom fashion outfit articles over there. And yeah, all over the stuff and whatnot. So basically, this week, I'm going to be recapping TV that I caught for the week. It's starting to slow down. We're starting to get into the summer months. That's when a lot of the network series tend to fade out and a lot of the cable and streaming services tend to pick up. So we're in this nice little area here right now. Um, and I just wanted to say real quick, I can't even talk real quick. Here we go. You can find this podcast uh, apparently almost everywhere now. I'm here on the Anchor app. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play Music. I'm on other things, Stitcher, and a bunch of other things now. So all over the place. So check that out when you get the chance. I am going to be touching on oh, some, the latest FanCon ridiculousness. There was there was a little bit of a, of a new flash in the pan of the FanCon fuckery that has been going on. So I'm going to touch on that. I'm going to be talking about Into the Badlands, Supergirl, The Flash, the Expanse, My Hero Academia. So all of those shows. If you haven't seen any of those shows and you don't want to be spoiled, please pause here, check them out. Come on back because I get heavy into spoilers. I ain't scared of no spoilers. So I'm going to be talking pretty heavy duty into them. And I'm going to try something new where I, I limit exactly what I'm recapping because I'm assuming everybody has seen these episodes. So we're going to start doing all of that. And I'm going to kick it off with uh, the latest FanCon ridiculousness right after this. All right, so we're going to quickly touch on the FanCon ridiculousness. That has happened over the week. So on Monday, this past Monday, uh, Vulture dropped an article uh, that was attempting to explore into what happened with the collapse of Universal FanCon. If for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what Universal FanCon is, Universal FanCon was supposed to be a POC-run FanCon, fandom convention that was going to be in Baltimore. They had established it at the Baltimore Convention Center, and it was promised to be huge. So huge, in fact, and so groundbreaking that they had all of these celebrities lined up and I had forked over quite a bit of money in order to participate. And this is from somebody who hasn't gone to a con since San Diego Comic-Con was just tables, just rows of tables with art and books and figurines. So it was supposed to be this huge, huge deal. Unfortunately, about a week before the con was supposed to go out, 
people were finding out that there was issues going on with this con. We didn't get an, a formal ca- cancellation or announcement or anything from the people who were behind Universal Fan Con. People were finding out through cancellations in their hotel stays. And then, of course, that spread like wildfire on social media. Everybody was on Twitter just wondering what the hell was going on. We didn't find out until way, way past the point of appropriateness uh, from the board and of whatnot. And essentially, it boiled down to overstretching what they thought they could do, running out of money, and just poor communication across the board. There's a huge fallout. People were talking about it for a while. And I mean, in this day and age, if we're talking about it longer than a week, that's a long time. So I did my initial reaction to all of that in a previous podcast. If you want to check it out, it's still up somewhere. And basically, you know, my overview was that even though I was sad and disappointed in everything that happened and and really bummed that I was not going to get my money back, because let's be honest, we're not getting that money back. Uh, you know, I was I, I didn't have a lot of hatred towards the people who were behind the con. It to me at the time, it felt like they got really excited. They got really they started dreaming big. They started dreaming super, super big to the point where they weren't checking themselves. They weren't looking at checks and balances at all as to how these things were working. And, you know, I mean, we've all, not to the, sca- the scope of Universal Fan Con failure, but we've all done something where we thought we really had a handle on it only to realize we didn't. And that's how I, t- that's what I took away from everything until I started reading some of the board members' own reactions and their own responses to everything that went down. And it just just got worse. It just got way worse. So uh, rather than basically sitting in their shit, just being like, yo, yes, we fucked up royally. We are so sorry. We completely understand moving forward if you guys do not want to be attached to anything that we're doing, but we are trying our best to make it up to you. Instead of doing something like that, it became very petty, very, very belittling, and just... And then the latest, the latest touch on everything was this article. So this Vulture article dropped on Monday. Uh, it dropped in the afternoon. And very shortly after it was published, it was already making the rounds on Twitter. And that's how I found out about the article. So if it's still up. If you go and read this Vulture article, they basically took the collapse of Universal FanCon from the point of the people they could get the interviews from. So that is... Uh, at least two of the names of the board members that were behind Universal Fan Con. So that included uh, uh, Miss Jamie Broadnax of Black Girl Nerds, and that included Robert Butler of the Black Geeks. I want to say that was his brand. So, uh, something. It doesn't matter because ridiculousness. So they they get their viewpoints, and their viewpoints a don't match up with anything that they themselves had posted because they were two of the most vocal board members after everything went down. They were the ones that were talking the most. Um, Jamie, definitely more than than Robert because it was just messy. And, and if you want to see that that mess, I'm sure it's circling somewhere. So with the whoever this interviewer was got the information from them. And it was quite clear that there was a lot of things going, just, just weird about the article in general. The tone of the article very much was 
was pretty flippant of just like, this was something that happened. No one really cares. All right, the end kind of deal. And then not only that, they only took the perspective from those board members. So it wasn't like it was an unbiased article. It was an article that was shaped around and almost seems like it was trying to save the character of these board members who honestly just made it worse for themselves. Like after everything they said in this article and everything they've been saying online, nothing was matching up, nothing was making sense. And then on top of that, the writer of this article had to go in and add a correction. She initially put down that like this little fan con only sold like a hundred and some odd tickets. And then she had to go back and correct it and be like, just kidding. It was like well over a thousand, very close to 2000 tickets uh, was actually sold. So there's that. But what a lot of people took away from it was Mr. Butler's comments specifically. He has a whole part in there where he basically blames the collapse of Universal FanCon on the non-existent, I'm putting air quotes around non-existent community uh, that he thought should have backed it better. And it was just like, oh God, here we go. So in the shambles of Universal FanCon, out of the ashes of Universal FanCon, why Comic-Con came up? So that was a con that people literally put together like maybe, maybe a day after they found out about the collapse of Universal FanCon, they had a whole maybe a week, maybe five days to secure a space, get vendors, do get the furniture, get everything set up and get it together and then hope people were gonna come out because there were a lot of people that were stranded out in Baltimore for that weekend because they could not exchange these tickets. Air flight, hotel, you name it. So a bunch of uh, people from this non-existent community got together, put this up and out there, killed it, did an amazing job with it. And it was one of the few saving graces of the mess that Universal FanCon was. Of course, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, myself included. Like, again, I understand that this this was a hard lesson for everybody to learn, honestly. This Universal FanCon collapse was a hard lesson for everyone to learn. I mean, as, as people who were just gonna go to the con, you know, there were a lot of aspects of it that I didn't even think to look into, like where exactly I'm putting this money into, how exactly are they able to afford all this stuff? Like a lot of things that should have been red flags in hindsight weren't red flags at the time. So now, you know, we have a better scope of understanding of of what to look for for these fan cons, especially when they're like the first ones that are coming out. I also, in the on the upside, found out about a lot more POC creatives that are in this community, that are in this non-existent community. And now I get to stalk all kinds of new fun people on their socials because I had no idea they existed in the first place outside of this mess. So the the article itself just was uh, just was terrible was terrible and two days later resulted in an article about why comic-con because i'm sure i am sure that that poor writer's email box twitter handles whatever social she attached to that blew up just blew up with a lot of poc geek and nerd rage (laughs) about how this was handled because all of a sudden here was this article and that article seemed to be like even was was more even in tone overall and just but it was also still very clear like whoever was writing this had no interest in this at all. But either way, all of that went down. I mean, at the end of the day, 
just just why just why you if you know you messed up just own it just be in that don't try to pass it off don't try to make other excuses as to why this happened don't the more you try to distance yourself from this thing that you are clearly tied to the worse it looks the worse it looks the worse it's going to get uh so yeah so yeah i mean there the people that did wrong are going to be stewing in that wrong for a very long time but on the upside, this non-existent community is getting a lot louder and a lot more visible. And I'm very, very excited and happy to be a part of that. So, so that's going to be it for the ridiculous fan contest that was going on. Uh, and then I'm going to be jumping into, into the Badlands right after this. All right. So we're going to be jumping into the Badlands. Yo, this season of Into the Badlands is... It's interesting. So Into the Badlands has been primarily action focused. There is a story. There's an overarching story that's usually going on for the season, but it's mostly about this action. This action is incredible. They're doing amazing things for this genre of show. Uh, and usually though, the action is primary and the story is secondary. So it's like first season, I, I know a lot of people started watching it and then they were just kind of like, eh, I'll get back to it. Cause it was a slow, it was a slow start. They were trying to create the background and the setup. And then the second season, they were able to move a little bit faster now that they had a bunch of stuff established. Uh, and now this third season, it's, it kind of feels like they just blew the doors open out the gate for this third season. It was just like, you know what? We know what they want. We know how to move this forward. And we're also going to introduce crazy things along the way. Go. So, I mean, we're into the third episode now, I believe. I'm pretty sure that's the third episode. But basically, it picks up. Um, it's got to focus on Tilda. Tilda and her ridiculousness of trying to be the Iron Rabbit. So when Tilda decided to stop being with the Widow... I mean, at the time in the second season, the story made sense. She was seeing some of the flaws now in her mother. And this was a woman that she had held on a pedestal. And now she was starting to see how like the politics that her mom was pushing may not have been the greatest, may not have been the most even as she you know, thought it was going to be. So questions started happening. Then the veil stuff went down and she was like, I'm out. So she started her own separate thing. And she is now considered as the iron rabbit and she's basically just been doing petty shit like this whole time like she's been going after her mother's convoys and just screwing with the widow's overall military situation of trying to take over the rest of the badlands so we kickstart the episode off with tilda basically dealing with uh the widow finally catching up to her they they corner her outside of her hideout they almost get the best of her when she faces off against moon uh, nathaniel moon the new regent and she barely makes it out of there alive her girl dessa basically kind of takes the fall for her so she can get out and escape Adessa is another character that I, I could do with or without they introduced her in this the second season uh, towards the tail end of it, she was part of a group of, uh, they called them dolls. They're basically prostitutes in the Badlands uh, that they freed. And poor Odessa, she, she had been through some horrific crap. And she, on the, and think on top of that, she doesn't even like guys. Like, so, so she's attracted to women and she kind of falls for, for Tilda. And honestly, who wouldn't? She's like this strong woman who's beating people in their faces. Like she's not taking crap from anybody. 
So she kind of falls for Tilda, even though Tilda and MK kind of have a thing going on. And in the second season, there's a little bit of jealousy there. But in the end, Odessa and Tilda run off and start this new iron rabbit thing together. So Odessa getting kidnapped by the widow's people, big deal. Big deal that that's happening. Uh, we also get Tilda and Lydia kind of interacting with each other. Lydia used to be a baroness. She was married to the crazy baron from the first two seasons. Uh, and honestly, Lydia, I think, is poison. Like she, wherever she is at, whoever she has allied herself with or attached herself to, that group of people die, die terribly every single time. She was a baroness. His whole empire went up. Then she tried to go back home to her father's people. They almost all got murdered. And then now she's trying to pair herself up with the widow. I mean, it's maybe she knows this is her superpower. And she's like, this is how I'm going to work from inside. I'm going to lead to the ruin. So they have a whole conversation. Because at first it seems like Lydia is on the widow's side completely. She clearly was the one that dropped the information that Tilda was hiding out where she was. On the other hand, she's also the one that warned Tilda and the crew that stuff was about to go down. So she's kind of playing both sides of the field right now. It's very hard to figure out whether to trust her or not. She also has history with Moon. So Moon, Nathaniel Moon is the new regent, the guy with the one arm that has a bloodlust for Sonny because Sonny took his arm and didn't kill him like he wanted him to. Apparently, Nathaniel Moon and Lydia have romantic history together. Apparently, he used to be a regent for her husband back in the day. And for whatever reason, now that they're both technically free and clear, she's still like, nah, we can't fall in love, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if that's a self-protecting thing, like a survivalist thing, like he can't be in my ish because he's going to ruin whatever plans I got going. Or if she's honestly scared to fall for somebody else because it didn't end well before. So for whatever reason, that's a, that's a storyline that we're getting between the two of them. Uh, Nathaniel Moon is ridiculously talented as a regent. Like he's got one arm, but he is using that to the best of his ability. I mean, it's a new tech arm. It's very steampunk metal-esque type. He's got this bowler hat. He honestly looks really, really hot in this, uh, this outfit. His regent outfit <laughs> is very 1800s, like steampunk gothic with the blue. And he's got the butterfly emblem on his arm. But this dude means business. And when he gets into the fight, he's the one that's going to be coming out of that fight alive, like every time. And where we've left things with Moon is that he's kind of picking up the trail as to where Sonny is because Sonny's a dumbass. We will get into that later. But yeah, so Nathaniel Moon is becoming, he, I thought he, I didn't think he was going to be a character that I was going to really like. A, he's with the widow, who I'm not the biggest fan of. She's, She's also one where you're not sure where exactly she's siding. And, you know, his whole thing is like, I could do without any of this. I'm just trying to get my revenge on Sonny, period. That's his whole thing. But in the meantime, he's just doing these amazing things to like help the widow out with her, her new era of rule. And he kind of has taken like a big liking to it. So we're seeing that. Sonny as I said, is an idiot. So the is this story we have around Sonny is actually really, it's not very layered at all. He's got his son, Vale is dead. And his son, as we discovered in the previous episode, is now one of the black eyed kids. And apparently that type of gift is not given to, or doesn't show up in the kids until they're like 
almost into their adolescence. And for whatever reason, it is showing up in this infant. So because of this and because of how powerful this gift is, it's it's hurting the baby. The baby's health is at risk with this. So Sonny is desperately trying to find somebody to help him with this. And of course, in order for him to do that, he's got to cross back into the Badlands and it's right into the middle of the Widow's War to figure out what's going on. His whole story sideline, it was nice to see Sonny in his, you know, regent era type of thing. I forget what they call them. Rippers? Assassins, basically the fighters. So he's he's in his full role as a regent fighting. He's donning fake blue colors. Him and Baji have stolen these outfits so he can sneak in to sneak this baby across the lines. And it was just it was just nice to see him using that strategy, falling back almost into suit with what he's supposed to be doing. But it also worked as like a bit of reflection for him because he had at least towards the end there of his role as being a regent, he was having major conflicting feelings about what he was doing and why he was doing it. So, you know, in the early days, he just did it because he was ordered to, no questions asked, no further thought. And then as those that death count started to rise, apparently, or maybe because he was with Vale now, all of a sudden he started questioning the morality of things. So he's seeing how the younger kids are taking this, especially after everything that goes down. Of course, he's successful in his endeavor to get across the lines, but he's also seeing like this cycle repeating itself with the younger generation now of like not asking any questions, just doing what's being told and no improvement. There's no growth happening, which is supposed to be what's going on now that the widow is in charge. So we see that. And we also got to see another side of Baji. So Baji is absolutely a favorite of mine. Nick Frost is hilarious. I love him in a lot of his projects, especially the projects he does with uh, his buddy, Simon Peck. And he is really surprising me with, I didn't think he was gonna, A, I didn't think he was gonna last past the second season. I didn't think we were gonna get a whole lot of Nick Frost. So the fact that he's sticking with the series is already great. And then secondly, we keep getting hints to his past. We know he was an abbot. He used to work at the monastery uh, and he used to have a gift. He used to have the black eye gift as well. He knows the pressure point magic as we saw in the episode. But it's always surprising like when and where he decides to like kind of dwell into that. And I'm always surprised that he's able to tap into it still because he stated and they showed us that his gift for the black eyed gift anyway has gone, has left. So the fact that he's still able to do like this magic pressure point stuff, it's very interesting. And he's kind of positioned to be a character that could lead into any other story arc that's happening at the time. I wonder if he's got any ties to the Pilgrim story arc that they didn't touch on at all for this episode. I wouldn't be surprised if he somehow is aware of what the Pilgrim is up to as well. But we got a nice little Baji side story with him and um, I guess a new recruit, this girl who comes across as like this know-it-all and like, yo, you need to know my name in case we get pinned down. Of course they get pinned down and she's the one hurt. So to save her after her injury, because her injury was bad, uh, Baji basically helps uh, the, the medic that's there take care of her, which results in this girl losing her leg and him having to use his pressure point magic to stop the pain that would have put her into shock and killed her with the whole, you know, sawing off of the leg. And at the end of it, she is completely ungrateful. She's like, why did you even bother with this? I can't believe it. 
And I liked how they paired it up because they are in a post-apocalyptic society. She is now somebody with an open vulnerability. This is like, she's not going to be able to do a lot without the assistance of someone, especially in the war that they're in right now. Like she can't fight now that she's only got the one leg and it's not like she's been in it long enough to establish any other skill sets. So now she's just kind of stuck. She's basically stuck. And so it's, it's like a lose-lose situation, unfortunately, for her. She either didn't get her leg cut and didn't survive the night and died, or now that she has her leg cut, has to deal with the after effects of trying to rely on complete strangers to help her out. It was an interesting story. It, I know they're not going to go back to it. So I'm, I am after the person that's killed our mother deal with it and so we get a little montage of him literally beating him and i'm taking that as a symbolic of beating sense into him black eyes comes back into mk he takes care of those dudes that are trying to hold him down immediately goes after the widow now he did promise the widow in the previous season that as soon as he got his gift back he was coming after her he made that a promise i don't know why she was like that's cool and i'm still going to try to fix you i'm not sure why that happened but she did. And of course, it's timed with Tilda's arrival back at the Widows as well. So Tilda had come back to get Odessa. Once she finds out Odessa's still alive, faces off against her mother. They never actually get to the fight because MK comes down and starts you know, wrecking house. I loved that Tilda and MK still have that connection. He's in full black eye mode, talking about how he's about to end the Widow. She stops in front of him and is like, not now. You know, we, we've got to wait for our moment. This is not it. And it's enough to bring him back. Yes, he's got better control over the black eyes. But I liked that little like throwback to like when they first meet and he has his gift around her and she's able to talk him down from it. It was nice. It was a nice little cute moment we got there. And then she goes and gets Odessa and they roll out. Now, I don't know if MK is going with them. He tells her, come on, let's go. But... I don't know if that means he's going to be with the Iron Rabbits now or if he's going straight after Sonny now that he's got all this information. So that's up in the air. We didn't get any more of the Pilgrim. We didn't get any Lewis Tan. I'm waiting on my Lewis Tan. Supposedly we're going to get him soon. We're going to see his character, Gaius Chow. Gaius Chow? Gaius Chow? One of those. It's either happening this Sunday or next Sunday. I'm waiting. I'm waiting with bated breath. Louis Tan is amazing. And he's it feels like he's on the precipice of doing crazy amazing things with this show. He's in Deadpool. He's doing interviews out the wazoo everywhere right now. It's a good time. It's a good time to be Louis Tan right now. So I'm looking forward to that. And I mean, overall, I liked the episode. It does its job. I would like to see things tie together a lot sooner. Granted, we're in the very early parts of this season. But I would like to see some of the stories start to cross. I would like to see the Pilgrim either up against Sunny or MK or something. I'd like to see the Widow uh, in regards to the Pilgrim with this new arc that we're getting. Somebody, somebody against the Pilgrim so they know that this is happening. Because we as viewers know, but nobody, none of the main characters that we're watching are aware that that's going down. That's the hope. That's the hope. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. So that being said, we're going to be switching on over to DC TV. I'm going to be talking about Supergirl and The Flash right after this. All right. So I'm going to be smashing Supergirl and The Flash together in this segment. Oh, that sounded. 
Okay, moving on. So, Supergirl, real quick, real quick, because I mean, this, okay, so this season of Supergirl, I don't know if it's because of that break or not, but it feels like it's lagging. I feel like we've been running in place for quite some time. We've had episodes here and there where it has pushed the, the story forward and we learn more things, but then there's been like these long, in between episodes where it's just filler, where it's just nothing and we're not going anywhere. So this episode is kind of like in between the two. Like we we did move forward a little bit more we, with the Sam Rain and the Julia Purity and even the new edition of Pestilence storylines, but also it didn't amount to anything. So let's start at the beginning. So under with Supergirl, she teams up with Alex and Lena. They decide to go to this Kryptonian dreamscape dimension to try and reach Sam and Julia, the human counterparts of the uh, world killers, also known as Rain and Purity. When they talk about this dreamscape, Supergirl's all like, yeah, this is the same place. No, I've been having dreams about the same place for like the last year. What? What? Really? For the last year, you've been having dreams about this and seeing Rain and you weren't like, huh, maybe I should talk about this with my team. Maybe I, sh maybe I should talk about this with my team. Just, you know, because... That's weird. No, we waited until she started seeing Sam in there. That means she's been seeing Julia this whole time and said shit until, Ju until yeah, she's been seeing Julia there the whole time and hasn't said anything until Sam got there. The fuck? So that aside, I'm very angry about the Julie storyline. I will get to that. So she drops that truth bomb. They're like, okay, so we need to get into this dreamscape for some reason and try and help you. They get Brainy to help put all three of them under so they can share that. That was the highlight for me of the episode. We got to see our human version of Brainy. Got to see more Jesse Rath. Great. Um, but outside of that, we get to get back into the craziness. The Dreamscape Rescue was a complete fail. A complete fail. They get in there and Pestilence's human side has already just pieced out. She she was ready to go. She was like, yes, let me evolve into this evil creature as soon as I can. Perfect. So it's really just Julia and Sam in there. And Sam just gets there. And all of a sudden she's like, take control. Like, okay, here's what we got to do. We need to try to remember. This place is trying to make us forget. It's very Neverland rules, very much Peter Pan Neverland rules for some reason. Like if you saw Hook, it was a similar thing. So. They're like taking rocks to the other rocks that they are around and trying to carve in memories. It was a whole thing. All crazy, a crazy whole thing. To their credit, the, the people, the actors that are playing Sam and Julia, completely believable. They were doing a great job. And Sam especially was acting the ish out of every scene that she was in. She was trying to show you the struggle, the, the stress state that her character would be in. She was doing, she was doing the most, but she was, she was, doing it to the caliber that we need for the show. The camp caliber was there. So we get all of that. We finally get Supergirl, Lena and Alex in there. They're facing off other Kryptonian demons for some reason. And they make it over to Julia and Sam. And they're like, yo, this is what's going on. We need you to try to regain control. Try to remember, do what you got to do. And they manage to reach Sam first. And Sam takes over the Rain's body and starts doing stuff at the compound where they're at. It was never fully explained either what the, the, the Trinity was doing in the first place. Like they are, they're all holding hands in a circle for some reason. 
Well, no, I take that back. They said they were trying to get rid of their human counterparts. That was, I guess that was the purpose of them all holding hands. But anyway, so clearly it didn't work because Sam's back and she's causing havoc in the little hideout where they're all at. This breaks the circle. This breaks the girls apart. And now they've got to like get Rain back in control of this body. Uh, in the meanwhile, back in the dreamscape, Rain has been wreaking havoc on Supergirl and friends because Supergirl's completely vulnerable there. But for whatever reason, Rain is not, even though she is also Kryptonian, more questions. So that is happening. They manage to also reach Julia and they get to Julie and they're just like, we need you to take over the body. Remember who you are. Julia does. She gets back into her body. She takes over purity and she's doing the most. She's trying to save her friends. And now the girls are out and they make their way in real life to get over there. Supergirl and Alex are there to help at the, are they at the hideout? Yes, they're at the hideout. And they're trying to beat down Rain and the others so that they can save their friends. It culminates into this fight where Julia has managed to shake off Pestilence and Rain. Pestilence is like, I knew you were the weak one and goes after Julia. She basically like throws a killing shot. She just like stabs her in her side. And in the meanwhile, Julia kind of takes this attitude of like, if I'm going out, fuck it, you going with me and screams into her face and doing this, I guess, destroyed something because Pestilence dies and Julia does a slow fade out. They turn into a sparkly magic and it leaves the bodies and they go into rain. More questions. So A, oh, also, also at the end of all of that, right? And now rain is off with these, I guess, other entities in her body now. We get back to Team Supergirl's location and they're like, well, we did the best we could. We at least saved Julia. The fuck you saved Julia? What? You No, you didn't. You didn't. Yes, you were there to tell her, hey, we need you to remember. But you were working on the already effort that Sam had put to Julia to try to remember. And then once Julia remembered, there was no assistance in trying to help her against pestilence. So homegirl died brutally ridiculousness. That's not a save. That is not a save. Anyway, my anger aside, I was really hoping that we were going to get like a reoccurring character with Julia. I really liked her character. I thought it was a really interesting idea to have this girl who gets triggered to help. Her, her powers get triggered because she wants to help. Similar to Supergirl. Totally different aspect though to Supergirl. She was into music and she was a singer and then also her actual Kryptonian ability was tapped into her vocal prowess as well. I was like, ooh, we can have her be a recurring character. She could leave and like try to figure things out for herself now that she knows the whole truth. Come back. No, none of that. None of that. Girl has to die. So I am bitter. Mad bitter. So there's that. Moving on. Speaking of the Team Supergirl with Lena. Lena's lying ass. So Lena gets called on her shit because she didn't tell anybody that she was trying to help Sam with this whole Rain thing. A, she didn't let anybody know that she knew Sam and Rain were the same person. And then B, she kept that ish a secret. And not only did she keep the fact that she was trying to you know, fix Sam a secret, she kept her process a secret. People were like, how the hell did you keep Rain in this thing when she like blew through Supergirl like a tissue paper? Like, how is this happening? And truth comes out, oh, I have kryptonite. And she says, oh, well, you know, Lex had leftover kryptonite, so I use that to help my friend. And every time they ask her, like, why didn't you just tell us, like Supergirl, one of the other members of the team, Alex had a whole situation where she was trying to help Sam too. 
told no one? She was like, well, if I told you, I knew you would kill her. The fuck? This whole, the whole series has built, been built on this premise of heroes do not kill people. Like, that's it. That's been the premise. It's been repeated recently in the previous episodes. Why the hell would you be like, yeah, I thought you were going to murder her. No, you, no, you did anyway. Loose logic aside, after all of that, we get into another part of the episode that really pissed me off, which is, which is that Lena is a lying bitch. This girl lies. So easy. And she's so worried about being a Luther, yet she's just doing all kinds of Luther things with hot mess. Hot mess. Hot mess. Not only that, but clearly, if she's lying about the kryptonite stuff, she's lying about a bunch of other shit too. A whole lot of it. A whole lot of it. And I know they tried to balance it. Like, well, yes, Lena lied about the Sam stuff, but Supergirl never told her about this secret department, I guess, of security that exists as well. Why would Supergirl have to tell her that in the first place? Why would she need to unveil that information? Because why? Why? Does it make any sense? And then on top of that, she already knew it. She already had that information. So it's not even on the same level. Those lies aren't even the same. More questions, more questions. I don't know if this is pushing Lena to be a villain in the future or what, but it just didn't make any sense. This whole episode was just like, what, what, what? So my anger about Lena it's going to come back later, uh, but I'm going to move on to Alex. Not a lot happened. Alex got a cool new suit uh, to help kind of battle with the supers that she's dealing with on a daily basis. So she got that suit and a very interesting exchange between her and Wynn that was was filled with a lot of you go girls and stuff like that, which is, that's another thing that makes me cringe when I watch the episodes. Just a lot of white people trying to use a lot of slang easily and it's not, it's not coming across that way. So then... Um, we also got Jimmy's storyline. This is where more anger is coming. So, Jimmy's storyline. A, Jimmy Olsen is wasted on this goddamn show. Jimmy doesn't show up at all unless he's there for like a romantic storyline or if he's there to show how weak of a human he is. Like those are the two storylines we get around Jimmy Olsen. It wasn't always like that but it's kind of become that and I'm not sure why. So in this latest story arc we get for Jimmy, also related to his romantic life, also related to the frailty of him being human. He comes in and Kara's like, I need you to look into something for me. We found out Lena lied about, you know, where Sam was and what she's been doing this whole time. And she told us she had kryptonite. So we need you to get into her, her lab, find out if she has more and see if she's on the up and up with us. And Jimmy at first is like, kind of like, uh, okay. Cause he's been dating Lena Luther this whole time, romantically involved with her, dresses up as Guardian to go do it. I'm not sure why he needed to dress up as Guardian to go do this, but I mean, sure. So he dresses up as Guardian, goes into the lab, is talking to Wynn the whole time. Wynn gives him a device to like blow open uh, these doors that lead clearly to all of the secrets in Lena's lab. And Jimmy hesitates and then decides not to do it. He lies to Wynn, says he went ahead and blew open the door and didn't find any kryptonite. Fast forward to the end where he's talking with Lena on the balcony. I catco, I wanna say I catco. And he's just like, yeah, uh, I had the opportunity to go do this. By the way, I'm also guardian. And I chose not to do that because I wanna trust you as the person. 
yada 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 nose wide open dumb as shit so he goes in for the hug with lena just like i'm so sorry babe i can't believe i lied to you we don't need to have this in our relationship and lena looks right at him and goes uh yeah about that kryptonite i know i said it was lex's partially true i also know how to make it end you dumb dumb dumbass really jimmy really really just okay just so i understand they're trying to play this good guy motif for jimmy that's been him he's been this bleeding heart he's been this guy that's like no we need open and honest communication at all times type of person Clearly, you're not getting that with Lena Luther. Quite clearly, you are not. I also don't know why we didn't. We got all this now. They're almost at the end of their season, so all of that dropped. Just a lot of a lot of ridiculousness dropped for Supergirl, and uh, we'll find out what happens when they pick back up. I hope we get a conclusion for this Rain storyline. We probably won't, but you know, ridiculousness. Oh, also. There was a little bit of Monel stuff. He was all there to help, her, like, keep her under whatever, because you know it was dangerous for her to be under for so long to do what she had to do. And they came up with this other side of the storyline, like after Pestilence died, uh, the lead Legionnaires were basically done. Like that was the whole purpose of them coming in the first place was to stop Pestilence from becoming Blight and getting all murdery, and they did. And now Monel is clearly having second thoughts about leaving, mind you. His ass is married. He's a married man. But he's like, well, you know, my love is here. I don't know about actually leaving. This is show. So, so yeah. So that was happening with Supergirl. Flash was a little bit better though. So Flash, let's move on into Flash. Flash, um, okay. I say a little better, but not by much. So not a lot was happening in Flash. This also felt like a filler episode. We got the truth bombs from the previous episode. Marley's peaced out in that episode. And now I'm thinking like we're going to see like the ridiculous after effects. I thought we were going to see more with DeVoe. No DeVoe. Instead, we get a random side story dealing with Amunet and Norvac and Frost trying to get her powers. We get a random side story. We get Harry dealing with the other Harrisons who aren't a part of the the Wells club that he had, the uh, the Council of Wells that was that he initially had. There was like all the smartest Wells in the multiverse. Apparently they kicked out the, the Wells that have emotional intelligence. Like they were like, no, you're too touchy-feely. You have to go. So Harry, now that he's losing his intelligence, is also kicked out of the Council of Wells and gets looped in with the other wells that he doesn't really identify with that much. These wells are hilarious. And it's very clear the guy who plays Harrison Wells, Tom Cavanaugh, is having a blast when he gets to play the other wells. He gets to play all these different personalities under the same name. You can see he's having a huge blast playing these characters. But that's really it. Like, I mean, the most they teach him is like to look inside. Basically, that was the the takeaway. Look inside. Pay attention to your feelings. Like, it, okay. And they somehow tied that into the end of the episode of like, oh, okay. This is why we didn't have DeVoe in the episode because he's in his feelings right now. He's basically living a Drake song. Like, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. The saving grace of that was the fact that Tom Cavanaugh is having so much fun. And it's apparent when he's playing these different wells. Uh, Iris wants to basically notify the public of what's going down with DeVoe. 
And she's like, the way to do this, blog. I'm going to post a blog article about all the stuff that's going on with DeVoe. I had a thousand questions with this logic. Granted, this is comic book logic. This is CWTV logic. A, for all intents and purposes, Iris has not had her writing gig or touched her blog in like a good year or two, I would say, comic book time. I would say a good year or two. How is it still relevant? B, who the hell is following this thing? People don't have time to read. They barely have time to watch videos. How They're not reading full blogs on things, but for whatever reason, as soon as she posts this blog up, not only is it gaining traction, it becomes like a trending thing. People are voicing their opinions. They're, they're spotting DeVoe for them. I mean, it works narratively for Team Flash to be like, ooh, now we have these outs, this outside assistance. We have the whole community with us against DeVoe. But it was just a really loose way to tie that in. So we got that random story from Iris. Uh, we also got, we didn't get much from Barry. He just kind of showed up here and there. That was pretty much it. Most of the focus was on Caitlin. Caitlin trying to figure out how to get Frost back. And she's like in desperate mode now trying to get Frost back. And she's like, we can tag into Amunet. And she loosely pieces together that with Amunet's ability and the metal that she's been using, she could probably help take down the satellite DeVos trying to use to restart everybody or reboot everybody's intelligence. And she uses that loose thing to also tie into the fact that Amunet helped her before with Frost. Apparently, when she was going through it with Frost taking over, Amunet had a splicer machine and that was supposed to separate Caitlyn from, from Frost. Clearly it didn't work. We all watched that season. Frost kept coming back all the time. And then there was a whole portion where it was like a Frost Caitlyn mix together. Clearly it didn't work, but for whatever reason, Caitlyn's like, ooh, if I can get my hands on this machine again, I could get Frost back. Cool. We get Katie Sackoff. Katie is adorable. Katie Sackoff is amazing. I hate her accent as Amunet. <laughs> I am not a fan of this English accent. It's quite clearly not a natural English accent. It's just very exaggerated, very over the top. You know, taking a step back, I could see that maybe that's what she was trying to go for. She is playing a comic book villain who is way over the top. This this character is all about excess. So maybe that's what she was trying to do with the voice as well. It just, I, I just do not like this voice. So it definitely threw me off when she had an American accent when they find her in her little casino place and she was doing her regular voice. And then all of a sudden she snapped back into this really terrible English accent. I also don't understand why they gave Amunet and Caitlin like this bonding friendship storyline. Were we supposed to at some point understand that her and Amunet were like really good friends or something? Why the hell would Amunet care about her emotional stability at all? She wouldn't. I had a thousand questions as to why all of a sudden Amunet was being super, super nice. It didn't make any sense. Uh, and I mean, it, it kind of pays off at the end. They help Amunet, Amunet helps them. She disappears into the, the air, the ether. And it just, and there was a lot of questions I had that didn't make any sense. I did love Joe calling Caitlin out though on her bullshit when she was like, no, we need Amunet for this. And he was like, why do we really need her Caitlin? Like in front of everybody. And she had to be like, okay, she got a splicer. Like I was trying to use that. I, the person I actually liked in this episode was Norvac. I actually liked Norvac's character. He came in and he was, you know, he was trying to play his normal, oh, I'm just, 
I'm just a goon for this person, you know, for the overall evil guy. She's the main evil guy. It's not me. And then he's really working the system behind the scenes. He actually is the bad guy. He stole all her tech. He stole her metal. Not only that, he had the insight to create tech that would take the metal off her arm so she couldn't weaponize it against him. Like that was, he was doing some smart stuff. Of course, he ended up slipping up towards the very end because the metal couldn't get away and she was able to, Amunet was able to call it back. The fact that he's got this worm snake slug thing coming out of his eye is strange. I understand they're trying to say it's this meta ability. I feel like this snake thing is a catch-all. Not only can it come out and like bite you, I guess, it also spits some kind of poison or venom at people also. Like it was doing a lot of things. It did a lot of things. So, but I just like this guy's character. He kept himself pretty cool and calm under pressure. He's still doing the crazy stuff. I hope they don't kill him off. So there was definitely that. And I mean, it would just be interesting to see uh, what else goes on with The Flash. And that was pretty much it for The Flash. The stuff around Caitlyn, Iris's random blog situation. And now they have a weapon for the satellite. And that was it. So after this, we're going to be talking about The Expanse, which whoo, a lot of stuff was happening right after this. So we are moving into The Expanse. Expanse uh, is always just so great, so good, especially this last episode full of action and ridiculousness. And then also bad news. So in case you did not know, Sci-Fi has canceled The Expanse. They're going to air the rest of the remaining episodes for this current season. But then after that, they're just like tossing it aside. The rumor is that they basically didn't see much benefit in keeping the show on. It wasn't pulling the ratings they wanted it to pull. And uh, they can only air it like as live show. They can't do streaming. They can't do, I guess, whatever else they want to do to try and make more money off of this show. They're kind of inhibited because it's actually a show that they're almost leasing from Canada. So <laughs> apparently they just like, well, it's not worth it, period. So we're not going to do it. Everybody is hoping Netflix picks it up or some other streaming service. I'm really hoping Netflix picks it up just to add to their own sci-fi library that they're dwelling in. And they made that announcement not too long ago that they were specifically looking for other avenues to expand their sci-fi fantasy sections. So this is a brilliant show to do that with. It's scoring out the wazoo on Rotten Tomatoes and everything. And it's just so good. It's just so, so good. So please, we're going to we're gonna send out goodwill and vibes that the show is going to get picked up. Even if it gets picked up on Hulu, I'm not the biggest fan of Hulu. I don't like that they do episode to episode. You can't binge anything until it's like the whole season's done. It's better than nothing. So vibes out there for it to get picked up somewhere, hopefully Netflix. That being said, we're gonna jump right into the episode and it is a heck of a lot to unpack. I'm gonna start out with the Rossinati crew. I'm gonna keep calling it the Rossinati. I have no idea what the ship's name is. I know we just watched it. We're only five episodes in. We're Prax named it, but I am refusing to call it that. So we're calling it the Rossinati. <laughs> uh, so we've got Prax and Amos there doing their best OTPs. I love them. I love them paired together. I love that Amos is like increasingly worried about the emotional stability of Prax. Like Prax came in as like this wide-eyed, almost innocent, definitely naive person who was just like, I need to find my daughter. 
I know you guys will help me kind of person. And like in the rough and tumble of everything that's gone down since he's been with that crew, he's become a lot more jaded. And he's just like, every time Amos is like, well, you know, hopefully we find your little girl and everything will be fine. And he's like, and if we don't, I will get even. Like he's not taking anything. I was like, okay, here we go. So it's interesting to see that back and forth. And it's even present with Amos teaching Prax how to shoot and him just kind of checking in and being like, you know, we're going to do our best to find her. And he's just like, he, it's very much like Prax has steeled himself for the worst outcome. And that is that May has completely lost herself to this protomolecule business and he's got to put her down. So we see that happening between those lovebirds. Um, we also get... Bobby and Alex team up, which is the team up I look forward to the most. I don't, again, I don't know why I need them to be a team, but I do. I do. So we get Bobby and she is in a desperate mode to up her tech on her, her suit. So she's trying to figure out like what exactly or how exactly they were able to get rid of one of those proto-molecule hybrids in the first place. And Alex is telling her, oh, well, you know, we had to dupe it basically. It was looking for radiation charged things we tricked it into chasing after a you know this this like missile thing and then i burned the hell out of it when we when we left by placing it right by our engines so she's like cool incendiary so she's like trying to up her tech and you can see the desperation in her just trying to really figure out how to destroy a hybrid that she comes across and as viewers we know that that's tapped into the fact that she lost all of her team she lost all of her team to one of these hybrids it the hybrid is the reason why her life has gone the route it has for good or for bad so we see we see that pulled all into her and Alex picks up on it and he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second, hold up. If we come across one of those, we run. Like we're not, <laughs> we aren't facing them. But you know, it's it's Bobby. She's gonna do what she wanna do. And he knows that, but I think he's like, well, we're gonna, I'm gonna hope it never happens. We randomly get a conversation between Naomi and Holden. This was a conversation that I felt should have been in the previous episode when they were really going back and forth about her decision to send the protomolecule to the belt. We get the full story, uh, the reasoning behind Naomi's decision to do this. And she tells Holden this whole sob story about how she was really in the thick of the OA. She was uh, romantically involved with one of their like head people and something went down that she didn't totally agree with and in response to that this guy that she had been seeing and had a baby with decided to get back at her by taking the baby and just ghosting totally gone so when stuff was going down especially on ganymede and everywhere else basically where all the belters were and stuff was going down all the time she had this fear that it could be her own kid that was in trouble so that's why she sent the protomolecule to the belt, mostly to help protect, you know, this son that she's never met. And Holden being Holden was like, I understand what you're telling me. I'm never going to be cool with what you did, but I respect, you know, the actions that you took. And it leaves this like little hope in its wake of like them coming back together. I could care less if Holden and Naomi get back together. I mean, they were cute as a couple, but... It's not anything I'm necessarily pining for. So that was happening. We got Avasarala finally telling Holden that, okay, so here's the situation. I also need the protomolecule. 
I need that sample. She, uh, Naomi called her out on it in the episode previous and she kind of played it off like, you don't know what I want. And then withhold and she was like, no, that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. I do, I do need that. And she tries to phrase it with a scolding of like, and so the way I interpreted it was that she's seeing things as they really are. She gives this whole Atlas comparison about the weight of the world being on her shoulders and not being a child. And I took all of that to mean like she sees the world as it is rather than how it should be or how it could be. And she needs Holden to also have that view of things of how they are right now. And all of that is to culminate in her request to also get a sample of the protomolecule so that Earth has one to stay even on this ridiculous war that is going on. Because at first only Martians have it and then the Belters got a sample and now Earth is the only one without it. So Holden is like, fuck. Like this is <laughs> like, on the one hand, she's got a point. She's got a point. Like if they wanna survive and stay in the game with all of the madness that's going down, Earth is gonna need a sample. But on the other hand, the more that this spreads out and the more people get this sample, the less likelihood they have of actually controlling this crap. So Holden's just like, we're in this mess because you put us here in the first place and now you want me to help you with this. and. And she basically leaves him with that of just like, well, we have to do something and I need you to grow up and figure out what that something is. So she leaves, she goes off. It was interesting. And that's really all we got out of Arasala. So that's pretty much it. I didn't think we were gonna see them actually hit Io. So they actually made it to Io towards the end of the episode. And we see them trying to get into Mal's facility. And then they stop short because crazy stuff starts happening. So when they get there, they finally figure out a way to unlock the door and then they find out, or they see all the pods being released into space from the facility. And they know the hybrids are in those pods. And you just see the look on Holden's face of just like, oh no, here we go. So that is where we left the Naughty crew oh they're also like they're at the precipice of getting may which leads us into mao and the mad scientist ridiculousness mao is still over there trying to figure out what's going on with this protomolecule poor katoa is slowly but surely transforming even more into this molecule hybrid his body has completely changed he's lost most of his skin he's completely blow glowy light monster his voice his vocal cords have gotten deeper and his cognizance level is like slowly but surely going away. So they're trying to get these answers out of him while he still has a semblance of consciousness to, to answer them. They don't really get a whole lot of answers, but they find out that A, the protomolecule is sentient. B, not only is it sentient, it's been working on something this entire time. It's had an objective this whole time. And C, it calls this objective the work. So apparently the protomolecule needs to take things apart and understand in order to understand how they come together. And ultimately, I guess what the protomolecule wants to do is rebuild something greater. And it leaves it real vague, like it could be anything. So it's just like, and I mean, it makes sense. Like when uh, we have that crash landing onto, I want to say Jupiter, Venus, Jupiter, with Julie, Mao, and that whole thing. Like, especially when the, the other ship went to chase it and see what in the aftermath, what happened to it, it broke apart, it broke into pieces and everybody's kind of frozen in this existence 
in pieces. So you literally see every little bit of how everything works with each other. So it's very interesting that that is what it's after. I haven't read the book, so I don't know if it's trying to build a better being or what. But they get that much answer out of it before they have to put Katoa completely under sedation because he's completely losing the rest of his humanity and his thought thinking process and starts to fifth element himself out of that little tube. So he's in like this tube so they can study him. And it very much felt like Lilu when she first gets put together after the wreck of that ship and she's in that tube and she busts her way out of it. It very much gave me fifth element vibes. So. We got that and we got to see Mal fully squish all of his humanity under his heel. They find out Katoa is no longer a viable source to find out more information about the proto-molecule. And uh, the doctor's letting him know Katoa had the best biochemistry with this molecule that he had seen. And the only other person that's got a close enough semblance to it is May. And May has been the one that's been getting closest to him. And I mean, there was a tiny bit of hesitation, but not much. It was like a beat and he's like, get it done. So poor May now is going to be going under this process. And of course, this is all timed with the Rossinati crew just showing up to the facility. They had just strapped her down when they start hearing the noises of all everything else going off. I don't know if the noises they heard was the Rossinati crew landing or if it was the hybrid pods shooting into space. So they leave us there. And then we get behind the reason as to why these pods shot into space. And that leads us back to the USS Agatha. And even um, a captain on a Martian destroyer ship? Ship. On a Martian ship. So last episode, the Martian crew that they saved tried to take them over and try to go after them. They managed to strike a deal. Like, we won't kill you, even though you try to do something stupid. If you can get this message out. So we see the guy again the ensign and he's taking the message to the captain and he's trying to explain where he got it and what's going on and they don't believe him because it sounds utterly ridiculous and but he manages to at least convince the captain and she's kind of stuck in like okay do i believe this and share this information with an enemy because they want me to share this with admiral soother Souther, soother who is part of the enemy's side or do i keep this to myself and take them down so she decides to be honorable and she tries to get the information shared. And then after she does that, we see what's happening on the USS Agatha. So Suther and Nguyen have been going back and forth. The message reaches him and his crew manages to somewhat sneakily take it off of the comms to share with him. And he needs to make sure it's real before he acts on it. Cause his crew is already like, yo, if you want us to mutiny, we got you. And he's like, hold up, because that's going to result in loss of life. So let's let's take a you know, step back. Let's make sure that what we're doing is actually on the up and up. He goes and checks with Qatar and Kotyar. I doubt just to find out if it's right or not. Kotyar basically tells him the message he got is true. And he's just like, oh, crap. So after he's able to confirm it with Kotyar, uh, Nguyen's goons come and grab him and they're like, you in trouble. We're going to, you weren't supposed to be talking to him. Yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. They're in the midst of trying to read on the riot act when he tells them, nah, I'm not doing none of that. And the mutiny is on. So you see people, guns against each other on the same ship as he basically declares Admiral Nguyen to be an enemy of the state or the, the country. I don't know, the world. Anyway, he tries to take Nguyen down. 
He's like, I got proof. And then he shares this announcement with everybody in the system that's with him. Martian and Earther alike. Stuff goes down immediately after that, after he releases this message, not releasing the proof, but releasing his initial message. Nguyen manages to regain control of his weapon, shoots Soother, in the hustle and tussle, manages to take down almost everybody else associated with that mutiny. And then decides to get back on the comm and is like trying to convince the other Earth ships to basically ignore the message they got and just be like, he was crazy. It's taken care of. Now this is what we're doing. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. These other ships, for whatever reason, either because they were trained under Suther or whatever, their loyalty is to him and they don't believe him and they don't exactly fall in line. Specifically, one ship in particular does not fall in line. So when the wind tries to go after that ship and tell him to get back in line, that ship does not answer. He shoots a missile and destroys it. And that causes more havoc. So the rest of the U.S., ships or the earth ships are just going at each other now because it's just right it's just getting crazy meanwhile the martian ship still privy to all this information still i wonder if she even has a copy of the truth after she sent it hopefully she does but is sitting on this truth and sees what's going on rather than jumping in to like literally destroy them so they can win for mars she's like this is what we're gonna do um we you know i believe this message i believe what we're fighting is a lie so we're going to work under a truce. If you need the help, we're here to give you the assistance. You know, otherwise, uh, we're going to be moving forward with the fact that this war is a lie. Nguyen sees that everything is going to shit super fast. And in the midst of everything, I guess it's another way to, to hang on to his power, shoots those hybrids into space. Where they're going, no one knows. But for whatever reason, this is the decision he made to make that go. They gave a bit of background, and again, I haven't read the books, but they gave a little bit of background in that he survived a crazy battle of some sort where he like barely made it out. So I guess they were trying to show him as like this jaded, almost bitter veteran who doesn't see the point in war. So he might as well, you know, do for himself, basically. They also paired him with this lieutenant who's just such an ass kisser. This kid is like in love with him and doesn't think he can do any wrong. And after everything goes down, you see that belief shaken a little bit, but he's still like on his side. So I'm hoping that that's gonna pan out to be something like he's gonna be his, the ultimate downfall of Nguyen after everything that's gone down. Who's, who knows? Who knows? But it was a heck of a way to end the episode. Like just all of this firing upon each other. The truth is out there, but who's gonna believe it? And how far is it gonna get? Is it gonna reach? The Secretary General, like Avasarala wants so that Earnwright can get stopped. Who knows? And they just they just end it. So we'll see what happens with the next episode. Ross and Nighty Crew is right outside of the facility. May is about to get the protomolecule. Uh, the USS Agatha is pretty much done. And this Martian ship has the truth right now. So we'll see. We'll see. It'll I, this show does not fail to amaze every single time. I really, really hope it gets picked up so that we can see the rest of this story in a bingeable format, if at all possible. So right after this, we're going to talk about My Hero Academia. Right after this. All right, we're going to be switching over to My Hero Academia, and this is usually the area where I talk about the latest episode of that show, which is an anime. And I'll talk about the other Asian dramas that I'm catching. So real quick, I've 
Still am watching My Dear Boy, which is the Taiwanese idol drama. I don't know what's happening in this show real quick because what? So this show is, what episode are we in? We're into episode 20. So it's running towards the end of its little series run. And it started out pretty smart with like, you know, the older woman, younger man dynamic, then becoming friends, then becoming like lover, lover-esque, I should say, lover-esque. They were real innocent with it. Not too much happened. Uh, and then they had this huge breakup and then we got a time skip and we're clearly running out of time. They're clearly running out of story. I don't know why we're taking so long to get to whatever point it is that they're trying to make. Like this last episode is like after the time skip and the main character, oh goodness, the main character is back from shooting. I think he was in like Australia. He was shooting somewhere. His name is King Wei. And he's still trying to find his girl. He's trying to find Zhao Fei. Zhao Fei doesn't want to have anything to do with him. She's fully raising her daughter on her own, but she stopped working as a director. So she's not making enough money right now for ends to meet. And instead she's writing children's books for some reason. Not only that, she's being a terrible mother. Like this six-year-old is basically taking care of her. Like she's doing the grocery shopping and she's cooking and she's just, just doing a lot of things. She's cleaning the house, taking messages so her mom can work. Like she's doing a lot of things that she shouldn't have to do as a six-year-old. So she's, Zhao is doing a terrible job as a mom right now. And they had a whole part in there where uh, King Wee's mother is now the nanny and they have it set up. So like for some reason, Jelfe never meets the nanny. I would think if you have a child who's now staying in this nanny, and not only is she staying, you know, working with the nanny, she's not, the nanny's not coming to her house. So she's dropping her off at a stranger's house on a daily. I have a thousand questions, but whatever. This show is being super weird. I'm going to finish it because I made it this far. I might as well finish it, but I have a very strong feeling that this is going to result in like a, we learned about love through each other and now we're nothing type of series. So that is definitely happening. I picked up a new show. There's a K-drama that just dropped on Vicky called Rich Man, Poor Woman. Apparently it is a spinoff from a Japanese version of this, or I should say the originator. And at least in the Korean version, this is based on the premise of a Haidu Chable-esque type person. He is a tech uh, genius basically, but is a terrible person. He is a horrible, rude ass person. And apparently it relates to the fact that he can't recognize faces, which is a real thing, a real disability. So he has a lot of uh, issues trying to remember faces. So he can't always remember exactly it is who he's talking to. And apparently this has led him to be distrustful of people. We're only like two episodes in, so I'm sure they're gonna give us examples of people who have hurt him because he couldn't easily recognize who they were. But right now he's just an asshole. Like he's a, he's a complete, ridiculously abusive asshole to his workers. I'm like, I, if this was America and he acted, he behaved in the same fashion that he does with the with the female lead who is going to become his romantic interest, he would have been sued. 10 times over by now. It's, yeah, so that aside, I'm still gonna watch it. The lead girl is adorable and she's doing a really good job right now uh, with the storyline. There's also the nice guy counterpart. So usually Korean dramas, you've got the main love interest and then you've got love interest B. 
the beta, basically. And he's usually the nice guy. He's the second lead. He doesn't get the girl. He helps build up the girl. He kind of helps to build up the first lead, the first male lead. And that's pretty much it. And that's basically like this other guy to a T. He and the girl are saving the show for me so far because they are really adding a softer side to the tonality of everything that's happening because this other guy is just insufferable. So <laughs> hopefully we'll see that start to break down with the advent of her coming in. And usually with these stories, it's like he's a, it's like Beauty and the Beast. He's a monster. And then the beauty comes in and he treats her terribly, but she eventually softens that monster's heart and then love. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So that being said, we were going to jump into My Hero Academia. Nice episode. Nice and short. It picked up exactly where it left off. We're still in the middle of this like camp villain attack arc that we've got. So the kids are slowly but surely coming together. They've defeated the guy who's making the toxic smoke. And now we've got Deku and Soji teamed up. They're trying to save Tokoyami. Tokoyami's dark shadow has completely overtaken him. And they gave us uh, the reasoning behind that, which was that, you know, Tokoyami was paired up with Shoji when so Shoji got hurt by the crazy villain with the blade teeth. He uh, was, you know, had this mixture of emotions happening at the same time. He was mad that somebody hurt his friend. He also was like, he also felt helpless and he couldn't do too much. And then there was also like this fear that was also tapped into it because they're being attacked. All of that together led to even more anger, which led, and then on top of that, it's mad dark outside, which led to him losing control of Dark Shadow and Dark Shadow just going off on a full rage quest, basically and destroying anything in its path. So apparently Dark Shadow was running by sound only, couldn't really see anything. So anything that made a sound, it was just going after and destroying completely. Deku gets faced with the, I guess, challenge, obstacle of who he's gonna save. Soji's like, I know you're here to try and save Bakugo. Everybody got the message, villains are after Bakugo. If you need to, I will, you know, I'll distract Dark Shadow so you can go and save your friend, but I'm not leaving Tokoyami. And Deku being Deku was like, I'm not leaving Tokoyami either. I figured out something. And basically he enacts this plan where Shoji is going to run interference. He's going to run these sounds so that they can stay ahead of Dark Shadow, but also bring Dark Shadow with them to Bakugo. Because I know Bakugo and Todoroki are teamed. And they're also two people who can create lights, which is going to help to control Dark Shadow. Plan goes off without a hitch. They even manage to stop the, the teeth blade villain that they're going after. This villain's name is Moonfish. I have a thousand questions. Also, he's creepy as fuck. So they get there and Dark Shadow easily dispatches Moonfish. Mind you, Moonfish has hurt Shoji. He's a reason Dark Shadow is all over the place right now. And he has been going after Todoroki and Bakugo this entire time. Bakugo couldn't really do anything because he is reckless with his explosions and they are in a place of wood. So there'd be a huge fire and it's annoying him. But they're also getting their butts handed to them by this psycho who keeps talking about fresh meat, meat pieces, and gross blades out of his face. Moonfish... Real quick, he's one of the creepiest villains I've ever seen. What the heck? He's in a black straight jacket that they've outfitted him in, right? So his hands are completely tied and it's hooded. It's a hooded straight jacket. So it goes 
all the way over his face to just above his mouth. And mouth, that looks like it is wired open. It has pulled his lips and like the sides, like the, even the skin around his mouth all the way up so that his teeth are very prominent. It does not look comfortable whatsoever. And he's just going on and on about fresh blood and, and pieces of meat. He's a crazy cannibal. Super creepy. Thankfully, Dark Shadow dispatches him mad fast and they're able to get Dark Shadow back into control. And then Deku is like, okay, so here's the plan. We need to protect Bakugo and get the hell back to camp. Like, that's what we're going to do. So even though Bakugo is feeling some kind of way about it, that's the plan. They start to move. And that's where we meet up with the girls, uh, Yuraraka and Sue. We get to see them in action. They were teamed up before everything went down. And they're trying to make their way back to camp as well. They kind of get stopped by this girl villain, Toga. I don't know what Toga's quirk is still. But we do know she loves blood. That's been her MO for a little bit. So Toga shows the hell up and she is a crazy bitch. This chick is crazy. She's just like, she's calling them by their first names. She's just like, hey girls, what's going on? I need your blood. All right, who's first? Like she just goes after them and she's formidable. So at first they're kind of like thrown and She's almost catching him, but not quite, but she's definitely wounding them. She cuts Sue on her tongue. She manages to pin Sue to a tree using one of her needles. She goes after Uraka, and Uraka has to basically use her close combat training, which I really like. I like that they added that for her, that she's taking close combat training and has nailed it for the most part. She manages to stop Toga and gets her nailed to the ground. Unfortunately, what they also always do with Uraka is talk about her crush. And it's enough for her to completely lose sense of what's going on around her, that she loses balance completely. So all it takes is for Toga to go in about how like, ooh, I see you like somebody too. Yada, 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 yada. I didn't know previously that the reason Toga had signed up with the League of Villains was I knew she was a fan of the hero killer. I didn't know that she was crushing on him in a romantic sense. So that is Toga's little backstory. She she crushes on guys who are bleeding and have to be repaired. Like it's a weird, she gives a weird story, but the image that it evokes is the hero killer. So she romantically has feelings for the hero killer and that's why she's joined this new league of villains. And she can sense that Uraka has a crush too. And it's enough for Uraka to stop paying attention to what's happening and for Toga to get her blood sample from her. She gets stopped though, but not before she gets a full sample by the other guys as they come crashing through and she pieces out. She's like, well, there's too many of you now. I'm probably gonna die. I'm out. And she looks back over her shoulder and she sees a very battered Deku barely hanging in there. And she starts crushing again. Sure, sure. All right, show. And that leads to an even bigger group. So now we've got Shoji, we got Tokiyama, we've got Todoroki, Bakugo, Deku, and the girls. I think I just said, yeah, we got all of them. And so they're all trying to head back to camp and they're like, yes, we're taking Bakugo with us. This is what we're gonna do. And Sue looks back and she's like, well, shouldn't he be here if that's what we're doing? And they're like, oh crap. And you see Deku go into his thought mode, the monologue part. Which I just thought was hilarious because they're like, we are in crisis. Like, yeah, you are. You're definitely in crisis. You were supposed to be protecting Bakugo. You know his crazy self was going to do something stupid. Why are we surprised right now? But to Bakugo's credit, 
there is another villain. So there's a magician slash, he looks like Rorschach from the Watchmen series, villain that comes down. His name is Mr. Compress. And basically he turn he can turn people into like these little, it looks like little balls, like little marbles. I guess for him to carry easier, it's very interesting. But he just like shows him, makes an announcement and shows up and is like, thank you so much for these gifts. We needed Bakugo, but now I also get this Tokiyami kid. So that's cool. I'll see you later. And just flies into the air and leaves. And they're like, oh crap, we got to get him back. We need to figure something out. And Deku puts a plan together mad fast. He's like, all right, me, Shoji and Todoroki, we are going to go. Shoji's gonna hold us. We need Uraraka to make us, you know, make us fly, make us float so we're lightweight. And then Sue, we need you to fling us as hard as you can towards that dude so we can take him down. And they just like all just to sign on to this and agree to it and they go for it. And it kind of works. So you got Shoji hanging on to Todoroki and a broken Deku. I still wanna know what Deku was gonna do because he's broken. So, but we got them flying through the air, going after Mr. Compress. And, and landing it, they crash down and totally take him, tackle him to the ground. But they're also in front of the rest of the leagues or the rest of the villains that are left from the league that are still chilling. That includes Dabby, that includes Twice, and that includes Toga. So we see them and they're just like, uh, crap. And that's where we end the episode. So next episode is going to pick up probably exactly where they left off. We're gonna see how they're gonna deal with trying to get Bakugo and Tokiyami back from Mr. Compress, because right now they are literal marbles. And hopefully we need to find out what everybody's quirk is. I still don't know what Toga's is. I still don't know what Dobby's is. Is it Rust? I don't know what it is. Twice is interesting. It feels very Deadpool-ish with him. He's got like a dueling personality situation where he'll say one thing in one voice and then changes it to say something completely opposite in a different voice. It's very interesting. So we'll see. We'll see where all of that goes. Um, side note, I did like the little side bit we got with Yayorozu. Yeah, Yayorozu Momo with Momo's character and a kid that we don't, that we never saw before from class 1B, Awase. And apparently Awase's quirk is welding. They come across a Nobu, a Nobu that only Dabby can control. They are dogging. Like, it's, it's, this Nobu is ridiculous. Momo's barely hanging on. Awasi's like dragging her through the forest. They get to a point where, like, this Nobu is basically on top of them and he's already apologizing. Like, I'm so sorry. I was weird trying to get away. It's not happening, girl. I'm so sorry. But the Nobu just stops and walks away because the, the league's about to leave. So, gets turned off. And Awasi's just like, what? Okay, sure. Poor Momo is still thinking strategically. Like this girl is on it all the time. She's like, okay, worst case scenario, what can I do? And she comes up with this button. She hands it to Owase. She's like, I need you to weld it to this to that monster. And he's like, okay. So he does, he kicks it, he puts it on his back. And he's like, all right, let's get you to camp. And she's like, okay. Spoiler, this is all spoilers. In the manga, that button is a tracker. So we find out where their layer is. Um, but I'm sure they're gonna unveil that um, when we come back in the next episode. Or maybe the episode after that. I'm interested to see what they're gonna stuff into this. Each of these episodes are only 30 minutes, so. Well, we'll find out. But I like, I like that it's keeping its action so far. It's doing a really good job 
of keeping everybody on their toes, but still telling the full story. It's not bad. It's doing pretty good. And I feel like I got more information about Tokiyama than I did. Oh, that was really loud. Than I did reading the, the manga. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here and exactly how the, fin the final showdown is getting closer and closer. So I'm interested to see where that's going to end up also and what we're going to get with it. Really, system? So there's another anime that I wanted to check out, and it is called Space Battleship Tiramisu. The premise sounds absolutely ridiculous. They're literally in space, and apparently one of the pilots has an all-out food war. He's just, he's just trying to eat as much food as he can, apparently. It looks really silly and it's super short it's like six minutes each but i might be talking about that next episode who knows so that's it that's gonna wrap it up for curvy geeky fangirl those are all the shows i caught this week i'm going to be catching deadpool 2 next friday saturday friday one somewhere sometime next week i'll be catching it so i'm gonna be giving my two cents about that and that's it for right now I'm trying to think of something else but Nope, that's it. So, yep, that's going to be it for right now. So, like I said, you can always catch me at curvygeekyfangirl.com. I do this podcast every week. I'm usually out as a new episode on Mondays. And like I said, you can catch me all over the place on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, you name it, it's there. If you're interested and you want to send a message or be a part of this podcast with your own opinion on some stuff maybe that you caught, or what I said, you can do so through the Anchor app if you download it. It lets you do a little message thing, and I can include it in the next podcast. So there is that. You can also hit me up on my email, curvygeekyfangirl at gmail.com uh, with any comments or questions you guys got. We keep the conversation going, but that is going to be it. So everybody have a great week, and I'll see you next Monday. Bye. I'm not going to be able to do that.